Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Pat Cummins. I'm Josh Hazelwood. I'm Lisbon Kawaja. I'm Mitch Marsh. I'm Darren Lehman. I'm Mitch Stark, and you're listening to the Unplayable Podcast. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to review the first Magellan Ashes test in Brisbane, preview the second test in Adelaide, address a truly bizarre backward point, and finish the show with play it or leave it. Here to get through all that is former Australia batsman Mike Cussie. Welcome back, Mr. Hussey. G'day, Sam. How are you, mate? I'm going really well. A little bit better now that Australia's 1-0 up with four tests to play. How are you feeling? Yeah, it was a, it was a really hotly contested test match for the first probably three days and then Australia really flexed their muscles day four and and obviously into day five finished off uh, very very strongly so uh, Australia too good Um, I think most people coming in thought Australia would be too good um, for the first test match at the Gabba Um, but you've got to say England fought pretty hard for those first three days and showed some good signs. Absolutely the 10 wicket win probably doesn't illustrate just how tense it was, Australia undefeated at the Gabatoire since 1988 and that's going to continue for at least one more season. Mike, what was your key takeaway from that game? Well, there was lots of key takeaways, but uh, I think the main one was how good Steve Smith is. Well, he was just phenomenal, really. Um, 140-odd not out. Um, he just... He, he had to work extremely hard for his runs. The English... That the the tactics they had for him, the different fields that they, they were mainly trying to stop him from scoring rather than trying to get him out, and, and so interesting tactic. But he was good enough just to work his way through it, not panic. Um, Australia was in a bit of a hole at various stages while he was out in the middle as well. But a good partnership with Sean Marsh and Pat Cummins uh, helped Australia get up to just past the English first inning score. But uh, even talking to Steve Smith, he was saying that rate, uh, ranks very highly in his hundreds, mate. Just because he had to work so hard for his run. All right, let's go back to the start of the game. Uh, England won the toss, elected to bat, uh, and they made 302 in the first innings, built around half centuries to test rookies, James Vince, Mark Stoneman, and David Milan. Mike, how important was it for the England squad as a whole to see those three players who were under so much pressure leading into that first test to perform in their first knocks of the series? Oh, it was good to see, because that was one of the main questions coming in in my mind anyway, how those inexperienced guys were going to go. And they all applied themselves really well. Um, I thought uh, Vince in particular played brilliantly. On the first day of an Ashes series, there would have been so much nerves and anxiety, um, so much uh, external distraction as well, um, and, and a lot of hype. And, and they, they managed to uh, put that aside and, and show that they were good enough at the level. Um, I would have to say Stoneman and Milan probably need to try and be a little bit more proactive against someone like Nathan Lyon. They were very patient against him and allowed Nathan just to get into his nice groove and, and good line and length, and uh, and they built up a lot of pressure on themselves there. But you can't take anything away from Nathan Lyon. I thought he bowled beautifully. But perhaps expect the English uh, left-handers in particular just to try and be a little bit more proactive against him in the next test. Yeah, you got a couple of them out caught behind. And when Mo and Ali came in, he played his shots against... Nathan Lyon, especially that sweep shot. What does a sweep shot do to a spinner, Mike? Uh, does it really throw them off their line and make them second-guess where they're putting the ball? It, well, it does. It just, just just changes their thinking a little bit, really, because 
you can bowl your best balls in a perfect line and length, and the sweep shot's a good shot to play against it. There is some risk involved because um, you're playing across the line, but you can get right out there, reach out for the ball and, and hit it on the half volley, and uh, it just makes the, the bowler change his, uh, his lo- probably his length mostly and, and then a little bit on his line as well. And then if you look to use your feet every now and then as well, then quite often you might get a short ball that you can go back and cut. So it's just about trying to play a bit of cat and mouse with the off-spinner and getting him to change his line and length and, so he's not as consistent. Now, you never know what a good score is until both sides bat on a wicket. And 302 looked like a mountain when, uh, when Australia slumped to four for 76. But Steve Smith, as you said, uh, in concert with Sean Marsh and Pat Cummins, they dug Australia out of a hole and eventually to a 26-run lead. Smith made a flawless 141 while Marsh put on 51 and Cummins 42. You spoke about it at the top of the show, Mike, about the skipper Steve Smith, um, one of his best innings. 2100s now. His record is just incredible. It's, it's almost second only to Don Bradburn now, in many, many respects, in many statistical um, analysis that you can look at and, and lenses you can look through. But uh, what about that innings in particular? Just how hard he worked. But what about it for you? Just made it really stand out. Well, he's just a freak of nature uh, at the moment. Like, yeah, you say he's probably second best at the Don at the moment, and, and his consistency is just phenomenal. Like most batsmen will have a good run. Uh, and, and score a few runs in a row, but you, you always expect to have a bit of a a bit of a, a, a low patch where you don't score any runs. You know that's just the nature of the game because the game is a leveler. Um, but Steve Smith's been on a high and just seems to be getting better over probably three year per- over three year period. So it's just phenomenal his consistency at the moment. He, he's so crucial to that Australian team. You know you, you sort of think to yourself, well, if Steve Smith wasn't there or he was dismissed cheaply then you've got to think that Australia are going to have quite a big deficit in that first inning. So he's such a crucial wicket for the English to get. And I like the tactics of trying to slow his scoring down. But the only thing I don't like about that is that they didn't try and get him out. They were just trying to stop him scoring. And there is a big difference there. Steve Smith showed he's good enough to work his way through any situation, through any plan. So I wonder if the English might change their tactics a little bit to look to try and get him out. You know, he can't be, he can't be scoring runs for Australia if he's sitting back in the pavilion. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But he's such a crucially important person in that Australian team. Um, and probably one of the reasons why he wants to bat number four. I know some people have been saying that maybe he should be batting number three for Australia, but he can just hold that middle of the innings together so well. Uh, and, and, yeah, vitally important. I thought Sean Marsh played outstandingly well under enormous pressure coming in when Australia were in big trouble, um, you know, that, that previous evening and uh, got through a tough situation with uh, Steve Smith. Unfortunately, he couldn't go on with it, got himself to 50, but he would have been disappointed to get out um, uh, without going on and getting a big score. And then Australia were in another bit of a hole and Pat Cummins, he, he pulled pulled them out of it as well with, with obviously, Steve uh, Smith at the other end. So... Some nice partnerships along the way, but Steve Smith, wow, what an innings and um, what a way to start the series. Mike, you've seen Paddy Cummins, basically his whole international career. You there when he debuted. Uh, you worked with him at the Sydney Thunder. We know about how destructive he, is, he can be with the ball. He's a tre- tremendous fielder as well. We're just starting to learn a little bit more about what he can do with the bat. Can he be a genuine all-rounder in this side? Could he bat seven, maybe a little bit higher, maybe around that seven spot? Uh, and if, if so, I mean, what player would you compare him to? Well, it's hard to compare him to anyone, I guess, at this stage. But it, it, the short answer is yes. He can definitely be an all-rounder um, for Australia and, and a very effective all-rounder. 
Obviously, the bowling is going to be his number one thing, but he showed excellent technique and excellent temperament and excellent character to get through those tough situations. Now, he did have Steve Smith at the other end, which I'm sure would have helped him. Um, but the English really tested him out. They tested him with some short stuff. They tested him with some good line and length, and his defence really stood up. So that tells me he's got the skill, certainly, to be an all-rounder. Um, he loves his batting, and he puts a bit of time into it, loves scoring runs. Um, but what I love about Pat Cummins, one, he's a great athlete, but two, he's a great character. He's the sort of guy you want to have in your team. He wants to win. He'll fight hard through the tough periods. Um, and, and he's a great person as well. So I, I think, you know, that's why the Australian selectors and, and probably Steve Smith have been so keen. As soon as Pat Cummins has been fit, um, you know, they've been keen to get him into the team because he just offers so much, not only just with bat and ball in the field, but around the team with his character. Yeah, England boasts a lot of all-rounders. Bairstow, Ali, Chris Wokes. Uh, but, you know, with Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins coming in at 8-9, they've got a couple of those all-rounders themselves. It must be such a luxury for Steve Smith and the Australian selectors knowing that you've got Mitchell Stark who's got a test match 9-9. I think he holds the record for most sixes at the MCG. Uh, you know, he hit his second ball, I think, for six and then got out the next ball. He's quite a lot of action when Mitch Stark's out there and they've got Pat Cummins coming in after him. Do you reckon that's the right order? Do you reckon maybe... Paddy's going to push to get up there at, at number eight and, and drop Starkey down a spot? <laughs> well, it's healthy competition, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I personally think Starkey's got the, uh, the runs on the board. You know, 99 in a test match is pretty impressive. Uh, and, he's, and he's also made some pretty good contributions over the last few years. So um, I, I, I like it the way it is at the moment. And uh, it's good just to have Pat Cummins just pushing him along and making sure he's... Uh, you know, putting in with a bat as well. But uh, no, no, I, I like Starkey coming in before Pat at this stage. And it, it's probably one of the differences in the two teams at the moment. You know, um, that, that getting runs from the tail. Uh, the English batsmen or the tail end batsmen, when they've come out, the Australian bowlers have just been ruthless against them, really aggressive and, and making sure that, you know, if they want to score some runs or hang in there for a while, they're going to cop a, a barrage of short pitch bowling. Whereas... Um, the Aussies seem to handle it probably a little bit better than the English at the moment, and um, and, and it, it could be decisive, you know, as this series wears on and getting sort of handy runs from the lower order. Now, by day three, the uh, unusually soft, spongy, sort of slow gabber wicket returned to uh, its original traditional characteristics, and it was uh, much faster. And when that came, Australia's quicks, they tore in. They peppered England's batsmen up and down the order with a plethora of bounces, Mike. Uh, what was your assessment of how the visitors <laughs> played the short ball? Well, uh, I thought the batsmen actually played it okay, you know, um, but it was just the tail that really, they had no answer, you know. But uh, you, you can't really um, criticise them too much. It's the batsman's job to get out there and score the majority of the runs. You're not expecting the tail, I guess, to uh, be able to handle that sort of barrage of fast bowling. Like, it, these guys are seriously quick seriously aggressive and, and seriously accurate. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking about tail end batsmen. So, you know, I, I, I'm loath to criticise the English lower order. Um, but unfortunately for them, they've showed that they don't, they don't really like it. Not many do, but um, they're, uh, they're going to probably cop it for pretty much the whole series, really. So England all out for 195 in their second innings. They set Australia 170 to win. David Warner and debutant Cameron Bancroft, they coasted a victory in 50 overs to set a new record for the highest total chase in a 10-wicket win. Uh, that would be a great feeling for Cameron Bancroft uh, and Warner. Uh, but for England to not take a wicket or really create any chances in that fourth innings, that must be a little bit demoralising, Mike. Yeah, I think you're right. I think before I go into that, the um, England being bowled out for 195 second innings, um, that's when the pitch 
as you said, had really returned to its normal, fast, bouncy, gabber pitch, what we were sort of expecting from, from the start, really. It was quite slow in the first half of the match, but once all the moisture came out of it and it, it you know firmed up, became rock hard again, then, yeah, you could see the Aussie bowlers really enjoy bowling in, in those conditions, and when it started to go through, they could see it you know, flying through to the keeper. I think their confidence grew, and, and the English probably thought, well, this is what Australian uh, conditions are all about, you know, um, after a slow first innings. But, um, yeah, then I thought Bancroft and Warner were sensational. You know, sometimes in a run chase like that, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking, and if England had got a couple of early wickets and perhaps got Steve Smith out early, it could have been a really nervy chase. But um, that, they just looked so composed. The, the pitch was probably at its best for batting um, at, at that stage, and, and I was really happy for Cameron Bancroft in particular. Um, he would have been extremely nervous, you know, debut test, Ashes series. Uh, in the first innings, he got out cheaply. But just to come in and play with such composure, his defence looked so solid. He looked, he looked solid as a rock out there and, uh, and then started to really show some class as his innings wore on, playing some beautiful straight drives and uh, hit uh, Moeen Ali back over his head for a six and, uh, and looked like he really belonged at the level. He certainly did. Now, England had their chances in this test match, Mike. They were two for 145 when Vince was brilliantly run out by Nathan Lyon, and then they moved to four for 246, and then they were bowled out for 302, and then they had Australia four for 76 and five for 175 in their first innings. Um, they'll never get a Gabba pitch as soft and as slow like that for the first couple of days. Is this credit to Australia for, the, for their defiance, or has England blown a big opportunity here? Oh, I think credit to Australia, really. Um, Test cricket's about being able to keep your standards and your levels up over the five-day period. Um, and if you can do that, you generally come out on top. And I think Australia did do that. England were able to do it for probably about three days out of the five. So, um, you know, it's and I think probably the other difference in my mind was that the English in their first innings had an opportunity to pile on a big score. They had some of their batsmen get some really good starts. There was half centuries in there, Vince and 80. Um, but none of them could do what Steve Smith did and go on and make it into a hundred, not just a small hundred, but turn it into a big hundred as well. And and, and that's the difference between good teams and great teams. Um, but you know, having your batsmen really take ownership and responsibility, and uh, you know, you don't mean to get out in the in the fifties or seventies or eighties or whatever, but just you've got to have one player go through and get a big one, and then have other guys bat around, and, and that's how you you can pile on a big first inning score. and So that's probably a couple of differences between the two teams at the moment. All right. That's a very comprehensive wrap of the first test. We're going to come back with our backward point. Here's this week's backward point. Now, this week's backward point comes from an anonymous source who wants to abolish the handshake greeting and replace it with a welcome headbutt. Uh, Mike, what do you reckon? Could that catch on? <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess you're referring to the Johnny Burstow incident there. Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably been beaten up a lot more than what it needed to be. Uh, it sounded like um, uh, Johnny Burstow was getting a little bit carried away, but it was all in good jest. And uh, and I don't think Cameron Bancroft took any offence to it at all. Even Burstow's come out saying there was no malice in it. He was just sort of joking around. It does seem a bit strange, you know, way to greet someone <laughs> with, a, with a little uh, a gentle headbutt. But um, no, I, I think um, probably the strangest greeting I've had is uh, being in India. When, you, um, when it's your birthday, um, they pr- uh, produce a cake for you and, and some of your teammates uh, are supposed to feed you uh, the cake. Um, but quite 
Quite often what happens is the cake doesn't quite get into your mouth. It gets all over your face and into your hair and all over your clothes. So uh, it's not a nice birthday greeting, I can tell you. Well, that's much nicer than getting a headbutt, I would have thought. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably right. You're right. Both uh, Bairstow and Bancroft spoke after the match and addressed this incident. And here's uh, Cameron Bancroft. Here's a little slice of what he said afterwards. You know, for me personally, it was just really weird. You know, obviously, um, I, you know, it was so random and I, I certainly didn't expect it coming. Um, you know, as I said, a, you know, a handshake or a hug or something like that would have been something that I've probably would have would have expected more than a headbutt but um as i said like there was certainly nothing malicious about his action and um i just took it as yeah i, I don't know johnny Bearstow, but um you know he you know he says hello to people very differently to to most others and um as i said we got along for the rest of the night quite well and um yeah i let it go and moved on from it, it was fine Mike, now we move to the Adelaide Oval for the first ever Men's Ashes Day-Night Test match. Australia picked 13 players in their squad for the first two tests with South Australian swing bowler Chad Sayers selected. With this match specifically in mind, Hus, can you see the Australians making any changes? Well, that's a good question. Uh, obviously, they'll have to see how all the bowlers pulled up um, after the first test match in Brisbane. Um, I don't think their workload was too big. Uh, you know, there wasn't they weren't punching out sort of 50 or 60 overs each. So I'm, I'm assuming they're going to pull up reasonably well. And I'm sure they're all dead keen to play in this uh, historic test match in Adelaide, the first day night Ashes uh, test match, um, which will be a great spectacle. Um, you never really want to rest as a player. So um, I'm sure they'll be all putting their hand up. As long as they are fully fit, Mitchell Stark looked a little bit sore with his foot. Um, uh, you know, with the foot marks, but I'm still not anticipating there to be any problems there. You're right, um, Chad Sayers and Jackson Bird were also in the squad, um, particularly Sayers with an eye towards this Adelaide test. Whether they make the change after such a good performance by the bowlers um, remains to be seen. I, I personally hope they don't make a change. I, as, as, as far as, you know, Chad Sayers is a fantastic bowler and he's done really well uh, for South Australia. Uh, Jackson Bird actually got five wickets in the Sheffield Shield match in Adelaide as well uh, last week. So he's putting his hand up as well. So it's actually good to have that sort of depth there in the background uh, in case in case there's an injury or, um, or or something like that. But, yeah, personally, I, I hope that the selectors stick with the same team. Yeah, the, the Aussie Quicks, they were all in that, that 40, mid-40s uh, number of overs bowled in the first test. So they should be okay. England, they've got their own couple of injury worries. James uh, Anderson, he uh, was on and off the field throughout the test match with a bit of a shoulder complaint. He took a, a nasty knock there, but the veteran looks like he'll be all right. And Moen Ali, he's got a cut on his spinning finger, the same kind of injury Nathan Lyon suffered during the India tour earlier this year. Uh, Lyon just glued it up. I think he went into the... the uh, the uh, hardware store and got some uh, pretty high industrial strength glue and just glued it shut himself. Uh, the, uh, medic- the medical <laughs> glue wasn't quite doing it. So they've got a couple of little concerns there. Uh, the fourth bowler, Jake Ball, didn't have the greatest test match, Mike. I think he went for about four and a half and over, 4.42 across the test match. And considering the whole run rate for the, the entire test match was hovering around that three or slightly under that three mark, that was quite expensive considering. Do they need that fourth seam bowler, do you think, Mike? It might be a little bit different Adelaide with a pink ball and it might swing around with a bit more grass on the wicket. Or could you see them going with a, an overturn or maybe that even turn to the leggy Mason Crane? 
Yeah, there's lots of good questions in there, isn't there? I guess uh, just with Jake Ball, I did actually have a quick chat to Shane Bond, the, the England bowling coach, uh, and he just said, look, he's just a bit short of a gallop at the moment. He will get better. He probably didn't bowl the way he's renowned for. He's, he's a tall guy, but generally tries to pitch the ball up and look to swing it. But he, he bowled quite short in the Brisbane Test, which were, you know surprised a lot of us. Whether the, um, his performance... Uh, uh, was good enough to, you know, uh, warrant another place in, in, the, in the second test. Remains to be seen. I, I think there will certainly be a lot of discussion about it. Um, I think Anderson and Moeen Ali, they're not serious injuries. They should be fine. Um, they're external sort of injuries. And um, as you said, you know, Moeen Ali surely should be able to just glue that up and that should be okay. Jimmy Anderson, just a blow on the shoulder. It should be more just a bruise rather than anything serious. So you'd expect that they're going to be fine to play. I think an interesting one may, that may come into um, consideration is Mason Crane, the leg spinner. And the reason why I say that is, with a pink ball, it's sometimes difficult to see the seam of the ball. And what Sheffield Shield players that have played in the day-night uh, Shield games have said is that the wrist spinners, it's really hard to pick the leggies and the wrong ends because you can't really see the seam. And so I wonder if um, England might consider just bringing in the wrist spinner for that exact reason. I'm not expecting the pitch to turn a great deal, but just as in causing um, causing a few woes to the Aussie batsmen just been not being able to pick the wrist spinner might come into uh, play. If you remember last year, South Africa came in and played an extra spinner and it was a, 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 a wristy as well. So, um, you know... It might be a smoky, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if England did go down that path. You've heard it here first. An exclusive broken by Mike Cussey. Thanks, Mike. Now, in the five, <laughs> there's five days between the first and second test. Uh, how much time will England devote to practicing playing the short ball, particularly the tail, as we spoke about? They lost six for 56 in the first innings, four for 10 in the second innings at the Gabba, and most of that was the short pitch bowling by the Aussie Quicks. What can they do in that short amount of time, Mike, to sort of get over this phobia that they've developed? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not going to be easy, that, that's for sure. I, I think probably two things. <clears throat> the first thing is to have a chat to some of the batters and and individually come up with what their plan is going to be against the short ball. Whether it's duck and weave and survive or whether it's take it on and try and score as many runs as they can or what, whatever it may be. And then, yep, you're right, get in the net and just start getting throw down, bowlers, whatever you can and just get them to bowl short so you can get some confidence in playing that short ball because, it's yeah, it's not going to stop. They're just going to keep coming. They're going to keep hunting as a pack, and they're going to keep trying to intimidate these English tails. So the more comfortable they can get at playing it, then the better they're going to be. And um, it's amazing. If, if they do become confident playing it and show that they're not worried by it, then you never know. Then the Aussies might have to change their tactic a little bit. But certainly the English uh, tail didn't play it all that well in the first test. Do you reckon England going to change many of the tactics that they employed in Brisbane? They they really went for a patience game, didn't they? They they waited for the bad ball. They let the Australians bowl to them. Even in when they were bowling, they wouldn't allow Steve Smith or and David Warner. They put uh, to get free boundaries. They put sweepers on the off and on side, made sure they mm. would instead of getting those boundaries, they'd only get one and sort of just uh, test their patience and, and not allow them those boundaries. Do you think those those tactics are going to continue, or will they try and reshape it? Uh, in a big effort to try and get Steve Smith out. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see. It was interesting listening to um, Alistair Cook before the first Test match, and sort of in, when he said that, you know, um, uh, getting away with a draw in Brisbane would be a good result for England, and that probably summed up the mindset of the English coming into that Test match. They, they, they probably were a bit defensive and just looked to survive and hang in there and, and stop the Aussies from scoring. It might be different in Adelaide um, if they can get that pink ball moving. 
um, then they'll feel like they're more of a chance of knocking over the Australian batsmen and uh, and um, and probably will be a little bit more aggressive with their field placing and their mindset with their uh, with their bowling. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think they've sort of identified this test match as a chance where they can really challenge. So we'll have to wait and see how it pans out. But um, I, I I sort of get the feeling perhaps they have to be a little bit more positive and a bit more aggressive and, and try and take the game up to the Aussies, both with the bat and the ball, um, if they are going to compete with this Australian team. Because if you just keep trying to hang in there and, and try and survive over a period of time, a good team will eventually just wear you down. Yeah, Australia's played two pink ball test matches at home. England just the one against the Windies earlier this summer. Uh, Mike, do you think Australia's extra experience in day-night test match twilight cricket, will that be a big factor in this game? I think it will, you know. Um, yeah, all of the players have obviously played in that those two test matches at Adelaide, but then there's also been some first-class matches where they've all played with the pink ball as well. So just having that experience of, of knowing what to expect, knowing what the what to expect in Adelaide, um, it, it, it will give them an advantage because the English are doing it for the first time uh, in Adelaide. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because England, I think they'll give themselves a chance because they're hoping they can get that ball to move. But on the other hand, the Australians know what to expect. They've played a couple of games there. That they, they, They're going to know the conditions a lot better than England. So I personally do think it's going to be a, um, a, a big advantage for Australia. And, and, and certainly, you know, again, um, they'll start favourites coming into this test. And they're also using a kookaburra ball in the game they used uh, a Dukes ball, England, against the West Indies. So they've got to adapt to a new ball where the Australians have used uh, the kookaburra or different variations of it for the past couple of summers. Uh, Mike, Joe Root spoke after the game in Brisbane and he sounded a little bit deflated because England did have such a, a good opportunity up there with Australia getting themselves out of that game and then winning so comprehensively in the end. How much momentum do they have and is it is it time to really put the foot on the throat? I think Ricky Ponty's said on cricket.com.au, now's the time to really push home the advantage. Now they're on the ground, sink the boot in and go for that. Not only just the win here in Adelaide, but the, the 5-0. <laughs> well, I don't think the Australian team will be thinking too much about that. You know, they can't be thinking about 5-0 just yet. They've just got to be focusing on Adelaide and, and almost, you know what, starting on zero. It's a brand new test match. You know, they're not starting none for 170, you know, and, and the bowlers aren't starting with... Uh, England all out for 195 or, you know, it's all starting from scratch again. So they're going to start their plans. They've got to execute their skills well again with both bat and ball, put put England under pressure. And then hopefully from an Australian perspective, that there are a few scars there from the first test, which means they're starting a little bit behind the eight ball. From an England perspective, they need to almost like, right, okay, that one's gone. Let's focus on our preparation for Adelaide. Let's uh, prepare as well as we possibly can. Let's try and learn a few lessons from the first test. And let's come in with a really positive frame of mind and a positive attitude. It's only one nil down. We, if we if we play well and win in Adelaide, the series is all square. So um, that that I think that's what the English have to do. Now the big story that emerged on Tuesday, Mike, is that Ben Stokes has flown to New Zealand to visit family, uh, and he could potentially uh, play some cricket this weekend. Not sure what side yet, or what grade, or what level of competition, but there's a chance that he might just do that. Um, what have you made of this, Mike? This saga has more turns than a Shane Warne stock <laughs> leg break. It, it, it's just it's just producing something every week, uh, much like Warney did. So um, what have you made of it now? Yeah, well, I guess well, from his point of view, um, he'll be hoping, and England have been consistent with their um, messaging, that they've got to wait until the investigation finishes and, and they find out if he's charged or not charged. But 
from Ben Stokes's point of view, he, he's got a hope that he's going to get um, released and, and there'll be no charges laid. Um, and in the meantime, he has to be preparing to play in a test match. So at the moment, I, I've been told that he's just been um, training in the Durham indoor nets, freezing cold up there. And it's, you know, nothing like being outside, playing, you know, getting match, match conditioning. Um, so I think it's quite a smart move for him to fly down to New Zealand, visit some family, friends, if he can get some outdoor cricket in some good conditions, good competition as well, get his skills up to scratch, that if things go his way and he's not charged, then um, he can join the England team uh, and he's actually in some form because, you know, he wouldn't have you know, hardly picked up a bat um, for, for quite a period of time since the incident, you know, and he, and he broke his hand as well. So um, he needs to be playing because if, if he's doing absolutely nothing and then he's cleared, um, it's a tough ask for him to come into the Cauldron of Nash's series and, and have an impact, you know, um, right from the word go. He's going to need a bit of a bit of uh, lead-up time in the middle. It's very, very interesting. I don't know. Are we going to see him this summer, Mike? What's your gut feel? Do you, do you reckon? I don't, I, it just it screams to me that he's going to fly in England 2-0 down and come in for that <laughs> Perth Test match and turn it on. I honestly do not know, and and I have got inside information here. I've, I've spoken to his manager, uh, and and I said to him, "Look, what's going on? Is he going to come and play? You know, there's people talking about the Wacker Test." And he, he honestly said to me, "He goes, we don't know. We don't know how long this investigation is going to take. Um, we've got no inclination whatsoever." So, it all it all comes down to when the police finish their investigation. Now that might be in a few days, but it might be in a month. Who who knows? And if, it's, if it sort of takes longer, and it does seem to be dragging out a long time, um, if it takes longer, then you can't see him really playing a part in the Ashes. But I think England, you know, if, if he does get cleared and things aren't going well on the tour, then I think they'll be pretty keen to get him involved because he's such a, such a good player. Um, and that's why I think it's a good move for him to, to try and get some cricket under his belt so he's at least ready to go if he's cleared in the investigation. What's this space, Mike? Right, we're going to take one last little break and we're going to come back and play it or leave it. Now it's time for play it or leave it. Before we get into this week's play it or leave it, let's quickly recap last week's efforts. Now, uh, you did actually do pretty well. First one was Mona. Pretty happy to recap. I thought we were very good, weren't we? <laughs> Well, not not bad. Let's have a look. Uh, now, Mo and Ali had to take four wickets in the match. Uh, you left that one, and he only got two, uh, and obviously none in the second inning, Thank so you. well done. Uh, the captains combined for at least 200 runs. They scored 207, and you played at that one. Uh, Root made Thanks, 15 and 51. Yes, and Steve Smith carried that one, uh, 141, no doubt. There'll be one stumping in the match, and you played at that one, and by a millimetre, <laughs> you got it right. Tim Payne with some very sharp glove work there. So uh, I think you might have Tim Payne to be there for that one. Both uh, Pat Cummins and Mitchell start to be clocked at 150 kilometres per hour. Now, you played at that, and I think the wicket undid you because uh, yeah. they didn't really get cranking until that until England's second innings, that third innings of the game, when the pitch finally came back to its traditional characteristics. They got around 147, so we can't give you that one, unfortunately, Mike. It's pretty darn close. Come on. Uh, rules are rules. Now, David wanted to hit his first ball for four. You let that one go. But you also did say that he was going to hit his first ball for six. So uh, I'm not sure how we rule that one. <laughs> oh, oh, that was just mucking around. Come on, oh, mate. You let it go. So we'll give you that one as well. Uh, and then finally, this one, more than three decisions overturned by the DRS. Now, you let it go. And that was more than three. And it was three. So you got that one right as well. They, uh, they, they, you, said yeah. that, you actually said the Amps would get them all right. But they got the root LBW wrong. 
the hands can ever be wrong, and then that really faint broad edge, um, which Tim Payne, yeah. another one he picked that one up to. So um, actually, that's a pretty good effort. Of that four out of six. Yeah, you got to feel for the umpires there. They they um, they've got a tough job, and it all happens in a split second. They don't have you know in the heat of the moment access to all the slow mo replays and everything. So you know don't don't criticise the umpires too much. I thought they were pretty sound throughout the test. No, they were good. The route one uh, was. Was pretty plum, but the other two, uh, I thought there was two sounds with the Hanscom one, so you can and might be sliding down leg, but he got him on the back pad, and then only one person on the field heard that heard that um, edge. So uh, we'll, let him, yeah. we'll let him go with that. All right, this week's one. This is all around the Adelaide Test. Uh, we'll start off okay. with uh, Faftu Pasi. Now he made a cheeky one last year to catch Australia on the hop. So will we see, or we will see, a tactical declaration in this Test match? Yeah, I might play it this one actually. It'll, it'll, it's a cautious play, um, but yeah, it is appreciably difficult late in the evening to um, to come out and bat. So I think with that pink ball, uh, if if there's an opportunity, I think one of the captains might declare sort of uh, late at night to have a little late crack at the opposition and try and pick up a couple of late wickets. So this was going to be the third day-night test match in Adelaide Oval. So far in the two games, 10 sixes have been hit and there were five sixes hit in the first test of the Gabba. So, Mike, more than five sixes to be hit. More than five. Four. Um, I'm actually going to play at this one as well. I think it's going to be a really good pitch and I think um, once the batters get in, they're going to really thrive and, and score quickly. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to play a few shots at this one and expect maybe five. Just yeah, maybe six sixes for the uh, for the match. Shorter square boundaries at the Adelaide Oval. They might pick it up, take it over the fence there. Yep, we'd, exactly. We'd, we'd exactly. hope so. Short at least. square might might be a few sixes. All right, at least six. Three centuries uh, were struck last year. Faftu Basi, Usman Khawaja, and Stephen Cook, uh, both two very good bowling attacks who can swing it. Are you playing or leaving more than two centuries in this Test match? Um, I'm actually going to play at this one as well. You can play a lot of shots at the moment, but um, yeah, I'm going to play at this one and um, and yeah, expect. As I said, I think it's going to be a good pitch and um, and I, I think there'll be plenty of runs scored actually. Plenty of runs. All right. Now uh, they combined to take all 20 wickets in Brisbane. If you're going to include Nathan Lyons' run out, uh, but in Adelaide, somebody outside Australia's four frontline bowlers will take a wicket. Four. Um, no, I might let that one go through to the keeper. I think um, I think the the main the the big dogs are going to do the work again and, uh, and, and get the 20 wickets for Australia. So uh, Steve Smith rolled his arm over and he actually looked pretty good. Um, but no, I'm not expecting, um, I'm not expecting any, any wickets to fall from, from the part-timers. All right. And no run-outs from anyone else too. That counts. Well, run-outs count, do they? Uh, well, they, if, it's, if it's somebody oh. who's not one of those bowlers. Well, okay. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Okay. No, well, I'll back it in with no run-outs then. All right. We only saw one by the Australians last uh, 2013-14. That was Mitchell Johnson. So we've already got one this summer. Yep. 2015 against New Zealand, the game lasted for three days. Last year against South Africa, four days. This test will go into the fifth day, Mike. Play it or leave it. <laughs> um, that's a good question too. Uh, oh, I'm going to I'm going to leave that. I think maybe a four-day test match might be on the cards. That's, that's my prediction. Four days. Lots of runs, but lots of wickets as well. All right. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. And finally, in my humble opinion, Mike, uh, the Adelaide Oval is the best catered venue in the country. The plum chicken there <laughs> is just ridiculous. Um, and it's also the most so- social test match on the calendar, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. Uh, so in saying that, 
Mike, you will put on over two kilos throughout the course of this match. <laughs> oh, no way. I'm going to let that go through to the keeper. I'm not putting on two kilos. I might put on half a kilo, but no, I'll be up every morning. I'll be going for a bit of a run or to the gym and doing a bit of exercise just so I'll, um, you know, make a bit of room for all that beautiful food they've got down to the ground. I reckon you'll be there trying to get all the food vouchers off everybody available, people in the press box, people in the stairwell, anybody you can find. Just trying to grab an extra sandwich there. Can... <laughs> You're right about the plum chicken, though. Yeah. It is sensational. <laughs> it is sensational. And uh, I will be cashing in on as much of that as I possibly can. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks again, Mike. We'll um, we'll see you in Adelaide, and then we'll do uh, we'll we'll be in person for the next time this podcast is recorded. So um, that's a treat for you, no doubt. Yeah, no. Looking forward to the Adelaide test in particular. It's going to be a beauty, and I look forward to catching up with you down there. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week to recap the second test and preview the third test in Perth. But until then, head to cricket.com.au for all your news, scores, and video of everything related to the Magellan Ashes and cricket all over the entire world. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.